So now for the reading from Revelation chapter 12, starting at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Frank. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm, that was weak. Good morning. That's what I need. I need that. I don't know about any other preacher, but when you talk back to me, I love it. I feed off of it. I'm here to be with you, not talk at you. Um, okay, <clears throat> before we jump in, I just want to say, at the third service, if you're, if you're new or you've been coming for a little bit and you want to learn more, during the third service, Frank's going to be in room four, and uh, he's going to lead through a start here class where you're going to learn a little bit about us, a little bit about our history. Um, uh, I used to teach him. Tyler James used to teach him. Uh, Zach's taught a couple when Frank does it, you don't know where it's going. You don't want to miss this. So if you're, there's a time to do it, go hang out with Frank uh, at 1045, room four, which is just the first room in the hallway here. Uh, so the text we're going through today, Revelation 12, I don't know if you've read it before, if you're reading it in preparation for this Sunday, it's unique. There's a red dragon. There's a pregnant woman. There's a cosmic battle. It is crazy. Um, I'm going to do my best to try and orchestrate how it was written structurally so that we can kind of walk through it together. And then I'm gonna, as we go through, I'm going to give a little bit of what some people have writ- written on stuff because we can't know everything for sure. But I'm going to give you what I think is absolutely what makes sense, which is like this goes with what God's word says. Here's the main point of why we're in this. Um, before we do that, let me just let me pray for us again. Lord God, you gave us revelation on purpose. You gave us this text that we're going through on purpose that we would persevere well, that we would fight the way that you've called us to fight, that we would know uh, that we, we fight from your victory and not for victory, um, and that we also, Lord, have this hope to look forward to, that even when we go through the worst of it in this battle that we live in, that at the end is perfect unity with you, perfect life with you, um, and abundant life. Lord, I pray that you would use this to encourage your people. I pray you would use this to comfort those who are suffering. I pray that you would use this to convict us sinners. Um, And Lord, I pray that you would use this, that we would look more like you and be made more into the image of your Son, um, and that we might decrease more. Lord, let us be willing to inform our lives on your word, not just the things we're bringing to it. Let us shed those things, help us think ourselves empty here, so that when we come to your word, your text, that we would be formed by it and not by all the other things that go on in the life uh, of the craziness of our lives. Soften our hearts, God, and help me get out of the way. Lord, I pray your, your word be given to your people. Let me not treat this excellent matter in any defective way. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, before we jump in, verses 12 through 14 
are not, we're not going through all of it. We're just doing 12 today. 12 through 14 are supposed to be like one unit. Most, okay, most people who write on the structure of Revelation disagree on plenty of things, but most people agree 12 through 14 is one segment. And it's essentially the whole umbrella point. It's the centerpiece of, of Revelation. It's the whole, whole umbrella um, ex, uh, explanation of the battle and the craziness between the fall, Christ's incarnation, and into it being righted in the end. And it'll end with God saying, the, it's time, the world is ready for the reaping, and then the wrath of God is grapes of wrath. We've all read that book, right? No? Okay. Um, well, 12 through 14, are, so we're, we're going into the first bit of this little section here. And this first bit is kind of orchestrated and structured a little differently than some other things that we might read today. If we went to the first century and we took the art and stuff that we look at today, they would be very confused. They'd be very confused with a lot of the ways that we go through rhetoric. They'd be really confused with a lot of things. Same thing, when we look at first century stuff, we can't put on it anachronistically. If you, if you know if anachronism, it's a big word. It, it means when we take today's structures of how we think in mind and then apply it on them. So what we're going to try to do today is look on how does he use numbers, not how do we use numbers. How does he walk through the understanding of the enemy and how do we... So let's look at First John and try to think with our first century brains, which we all have, Okay. Um, and before we do that, I'm going to go through the structure. Do you have that structure slide set up? Perfect. So this is Revelation 12. That first six verses is going to be uh, kind of the intro of who is in this going on right now, this narrative, and it's going to start the narrative. Then we've got a, a bigger section in the middle, 7 through 12, which is going to be a more detailed look at verses that are talked about in the first section, which is the first half of, of the narrative. There's going to be a battle. There's going to be a war cry or a victory cry where it's like we've won, we've conquered. And then it moves into 13 through 17a, the continued part of the narrative. It kind of goes back to verse 6 and then flows out again. And then it ends with a to be continued with the enemy standing on the seashore. What do I do? Kind of a thing. But also he's got something concocting in his brain. Uh, <clears throat> so now that we've kind of looked at that, we'll walk through that. Uh, who in here watches Netflix? There's, a, okay, there's those of you who put your hands up, and then there's those of you who didn't put your hands up. We, most of us probably, it's probably rare that we don't watch Netflix. I love World War II in color. Has anyone seen that? Yes, we've got a couple amens in the house. Um, the reason I love World War II in color is not because it's in color. I love history. I love story. If you got to be here when I taught the midweek classes, you know that we went through a ton of church history. I love story. I love it. What's neat about World War II in color, I became a, a total expert now. You could be an expert like me. Uh, I became an expert on World War II. I'm not actually, but this is what I learned. Blitzkrieg was the lightning war when Germany or the Nazis were trying to fight on all fronts and to just overwhelm the enemy. So they went by air, they went by land, they went by sea, and they went really hard. And in a few months after the start of Blitzkrieg, they took over all of France. Let, let's let that say more about them than it does about France. So they take over all of France and in, in a short time, and then everyone's like, oh my goodness, these guys are legit. Well, they're taking amphetamines to stay up all night. They're, you know, it, it wasn't a long-term thing, but they kept it for a few years. 
And then came a day, June 6th, 1944, D-Day. We landed in Normandy, and who won? We won. A few months after, the U.S. jumps in. A lot of things were happening. But we go in D-Day, and that was when we beat the Nazis. We kept fighting and had to finish it. Within less than a year later, the Nazi regime uh, surrendered. But they were defeated June 6th, 1944. We, f- we, we defeated them, but we had to finish out the fighting. Everyone knew that was the turning point where it was like, okay, we're going, we're going to finish this. Right now, this Revelation 12 is that. The enemy has been defeated. We fight from a place of victory already, not for this place of victory, but there's still fighting to be done. There's still fighting to be done. Um, so now I know everybody wants to go watch World War II and color it and learn about those sorts of things. Um, let's jump into verse 1. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. I don't know where she shops, but it definitely wasn't Switzer women's clothing, okay? (laughs) This verse actually says less about what she's wearing and more about who she is. It's less about what she's wearing and who she is. If you go back to Genesis, and maybe even look in Genesis 37, you see that Joseph is having this dream and he dreams of a sun and a moon and stars bowing to him. And then later it explains the sun was Jacob, also called Israel. The moon was his mother and the stars were his brothers. So we have this woman being clothed. Who is she? She's clothed with Israel and the mother of Israel and, or of, of the 12 tribes. And then you have the 12 tribes of Judah. She is God's people. And through this line of Israel would come the king. Some people think, well, it is Mary. It's a pregnant woman. You could read it that way. I'm telling you, it makes a lot more sense when we look at this and we say, this is Israel clothed. She's clothed with God's people, what was described in Genesis. So who is this woman? Who is being identified? John's writing to people who know Genesis because a lot of them would have been underst- have been re- uh, read it, trained in some Hebrew, but read it in Greek in the uh, Septuagint. They would have known this. So he's saying, this is Israel, uh, the mother of the humanity of, of Jesus. Um, she was pregnant, verse 2, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Diadems are like, like royal crown jewelry. So he's got seven crown things on his heads. It totally, we all know exactly what it means that he has seven heads and ten horns, because that's not confusing at all. If you go back and you look at this, uh, Genesis, Daniel, Daniel 7, and specifically Daniel 12, and then you have Revelation, are all very, very similar. And John is doing this on purpose that we might connect this, but it's also that the Holy Spirit is working through John for us to know all of this Bible is one book. All of this Bible is telling the same story. 
And so he's referencing back to Daniel. And one of the things that Daniel says in Daniel 7 is that the the ten horns are actually kings. The ten horns are kings. Satan, on his head, has these kings and the crowns of royalty. He, this is what it's saying. Satan works by controlling kings. Satan works through kings. We know, so Frank said this once, and it's brilliant. God works through people. Satan works through kings. So he is over political powers. We'll go deeper into that a little bit later. And then the seven heads, uh, there's no way to know specifically exactly, but we know that seven is one of those numbers that comes up again. It's like completion or fulfillment. Uh, he might be the complete antithesis to God. But we know that he's not complete antithesis in power. He is not omniscient, not all-knowing. He's not um, omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not uh, omnipresent everywhere. But he is evil and, and is the father of lies, not truth incarnate. Uh, so Satan uses kings and kingdoms. Let's move on. Who is this dragon with ten horns and ten heads, and, or seven heads? His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So his, what is this talking about? That seems weird. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to this, like, this is probably weirding you out about great red dragon and his tail able to sweep down stars. And we're like, no, that they're millions of miles away and get balls of gases. How does that work? This was um, uh, uh, imagery that was used to describe angels and it's identifying him. This isn't real time. This is identifying. Now, which dragon was this? Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the one that we know took down a third of the angels. So if you uh, go to Isaiah and there's a few other parts in scripture that would allude to this, Satan or the enemy was an angel and he was jealous for God's position, God's power. He wanted his own glory. And he deceived a third of the angels and swept them out of the, hev- out of the heavens. This is important because when you die, you don't become an angel. There's a lot of movies that say when you die, you end up becoming an angel. Angels are separate creatures. They're separate created things that God has made. And then the ones that fell out of the sky, the devil's angels, are demons. So this builds not just our understanding of this text, but our understanding of theology and of doctrine. So he, who is this? The one that swept out the angels. We know it's, it's Satan. And uh, it goes on. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He might kill it. Through killing, he would take his power. Well, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then we just got the quickest version of the birth, incarnation, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. Let me read it one more time. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. He wanted to devour it. What is this devouring? Is it Herod who's sending all of these... um, uh, soldiers over to kill the, the kids in Bethlehem because we know that that happens in, in Luke. No, this is the cross. He thought he would devour him with the cross. 
And then he ascends because it says he goes up to the throne. So he was caught up to God and to his throne. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. 1,260 days. This is the nativity scene that we should really be having on Christmas. Can you imagine? Instead of like a baby in a manger, there's like a dragon. And I, thought, I thought that was, I was telling my wife, she was in the first service. I was like, we got to figure this out. Christmas is coming, people. So uh, what is this wilderness? Well, we're going to get deeper into this wilderness. What is that about? And then uh, what is this 1,260 days? What is 1,260 days? Well, I don't do math, so somebody else did. And I read that book, and it said that that's three, hundred, or that's three, year, three and a half years. So 1,260 days, if you do the math, that's three and a half years. Three and a half years is half of seven. That number seven is an image of perfect or done, complete. So halfway would be in between. So this is him using numbers, not as an exactitude, but using a number to describe this is an in-between time. This is in-between Christ's first coming and second coming. Because we know that in three and a half years, Christ's second coming didn't come. Right? So we're still there. 2,000 years later, that's a lot of days. Well, it's, he's saying by imagery. Remember, we're going back to first century. How did they use numbers? It's imagery. It's in-between. Christ's first coming and then his second coming. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that time and about how he uses the description of that time a little bit later as well. So let's move on. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The enemy is defeated, but he still fights. If you go back to Luke 10, Jesus says, I saw, so the, Jesus sends out the 72 and the 72 go and heal people and cast out demons and they say, Lord, Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is what he's talking about. The cosmic things that are happening behind the scenes. And it's it's not about this whole thing. Like, why did God use Michael? Why did God use angels? He could have just been like, done. Right? He spoke everything into existence. Well, it's not about what God could have done. It's about how God did it. It's how he chose to do it. And some of us are always asking that question. God, you could have totally done this different. If you would just listen to me and I could tell you, God, how you should have done this thing, it would have been better. We're easily deceived. God has much better reasons for things. And this is how he chose to do it, is that he uses his vessels. And his vessel that he used was Michael and his angels. So they cast him out of heaven. And then we learn the enemy has been defeated, and yet he still fights. Um, does anybody grow up with a fear of dogs? I, I am not afraid of dogs, but I, lo- I love dogs. But I have a healthy, like, reverent fear of dogs. If I don't know your dog, 
I'm like, I'm going to, I would love to meet your dog. I would love to kiss your dog. I would love to know your dog, but I'm going to be very hesitant because I have seen the destructive power a dog has. If you have seen it, it's hard not to have that reverent like understanding. If there is a dog that has, that does not like me and wants to hurt me, but he's tied up on a leash, I will not go within the radius of how that leash can bound him. Do you hear me? I'm not going within that leash. Okay. This is where the enemy is now. He's been thrown down and he's a leashed dog that would love to bite you. But for those of us in Christ who keep faith and are faithful and obedient, that's how we keep from not going within the borders of that radius. And all he can do is bark really loud and try to scare you with the snapping of his jaws and intimidate you. Just like that dog would. If you would just come over here, I would get you. But for those of us in Christ, he's bound. He cannot get us. He may take this life, we'll get into that, but do not fear him who is able to just hurt your, take this life here, fear, fear him who is able to take, take the second one. So the enemy's bound. He's been defeated, yet he still fights, he still snarls, he still tries to bark and be intimidating. Now we're going to move into this victory cry. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The kingdom of God is very different than the kingdoms that we know today. The kingdoms we know today are under the influence of the enemy. And the enemy uses, now we've just read in verse 10, he's the accuser. We read just before that in 9, he's the deceiver of the whole world. And before that, we read he wants to devour. By killing, by deceit, and by accusation, this is how the kingdoms of the world gain power. How our king gains power is not by killing, but by dying. For us in Christ, it seems like we need to go out and conquer. Like we are the ones doing that work. But in reality, a lot of the ways that we actually conquer is by being conquered. It's not by our enforcing God's power and hand on people. We're given different weapons. The kingdom that we fight for is very different from the kingdoms of this world. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that the political metaphor of kingdom incites misunderstanding because all the politics that we know require the exercise of power either through manipulation of force, militarism, or the manipulation of words, propaganda, and usually both. We quite naturally assume that if there is a kingdom of God, there will also be coercion by God. And we will not be hesitant on exercising some of it ourselves, either verbally or physically on his behalf. Guys, Jesus did it very different. Jesus rejected the devil's offer for a position of power. He would not take it through, through bribery. He would not take it through trying to grasp at it his, by himself. He rebuked the brothers of Boanerges for uh, wanting to call down fire from heaven to incinerate their enemies. He ordered Peter to put up his sword. He reassured Pilate that the governor's job was not in danger. And finally, to make sure no one missed the point, he arranged that his coronation would take place on a cross. The kingdom that we fight for is much different than any other kingdom that we see today or we've ever seen. 
And a lot of us would like to say that we need to put it on our shoulder and do this. As if it's our responsibility to go forth and, and make sure that people change their mind about things. I think we have a different weapons. Verse 11 and 12. And they have conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and, all, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. We fight by faith and obedience. We fight by faith and obedience. Faith in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is more than just the blood itself. But what does that mean? We've been given freedom over the power and bondage of sin, and we've been given life when we deserved death. We deserved slavery in our own sin. Unmerited favor and grace given by God to us. The blood of the Lamb is powerful. The blood of the Lamb points back to Romans 1.16. I will not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of those who believe. So we fight by faith and obedience. And then it goes into verse 13 through 17, which is sort of the fight after D-Day here. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. The river that was supposed to swallow the woman was swallowed by the earth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Earlier it said their testimony, now it says the testimony of Jesus. So we learn a little bit more about what that testimony really is. And he stood on the sand of the sea, which then goes into the, the beast of the water and the beast of the land that's about to come. So I told you we'd get into this wilderness talk. Wilderness. In the wilderness in Exodus, we have God's people going from the bondage of slavery into the wilderness and then awaiting going into the promised land. And you and I right now are living in the wilderness in that we've been taken out of bondage and slavery by the conquering work of Christ. And now we are waiting to enter the promised land when he returns. But we're also being nourished. Just as the Israelites were nourished with the manna from heaven that God gave every day, we're being nourished with Christ himself. And we take communion every Sunday to remind ourselves of that. He nourishes us with himself. No matter where we go and where we are, we, the offspring of this woman, the believers of God, God's people, are still being nourished by Christ, his spirit in us. And as we think about this, as we think about being nourished, and we also have to recognize we have no bounds in the world 
It's not like we're a country like Israel was. There is no look to a Christian, no race. First Peter says we're a new race, a holy nation, a chosen priesthood. There is no look. There is no language of a Christian. There is no um, landmark of a Christian. We are Christ's because of faith. And so then now as we wander and we have no one place to call home in this world where we're not citizens of this world but citizens of heaven, we are in this wilderness but being nourished by Christ before we enter the true promised land, his eternal Sabbath rest. This is what is going on right here. And the enemy sees he's been defeated but he's trying to do as much damage as he can in the end. So then he says time, times, and half a time, which is so... First he says 1260, and now he says time, times, and half a time. He's re-describing that same amount of time that she's in the wilderness and being nourished, but now he's giving a different spin. First it was to say it's that in-between time of Christ, first coming and second coming. Now he's saying this time for you is going to have trouble. In Daniel, remember how I said Daniel and Revelation are really close? In Daniel 12, it identifies this time by time, times, and half a time as the time of tribulation. So this 1260 days or in between time is going to be tough. You walk with Christ, Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble. You don't get past that. Now why? Because the enemy hates you and he's coming after you. And so he spits out this water. What is this water? That water is chaos. It's deceit. It's accusation coming after the woman and not getting her because his hospitality on earth was just as hospitable for him in heaven. The earth only answers to the true authority also. The earth itself swallows up the water to the help of the woman. So the enemy doesn't really fully reign here either. He's tethered. He's a leashed dog. So you might be asking yourself day in and day out, I guarantee you, here's the th- three things about people that you got to know. First thing, every single person is a sufferer. Every single person. Every single person is a sinner. And then some of us who have faith in Christ were saints. But that first one, sufferer. We all know suffering. Some of us in different ways. And you might ask yourself, why, why, do I, why does it have to be this way? Again, God, if you could just listen to me and do it a little different. Why is there suffering in the world? Why, is, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Because the enemy is still trying to have as much destruction as he can before the end. He knows his time is short. And as much suffering as you go through, in the way that Frank has said it, and Frank's mentor Tom has said it, it can only last a lifetime. And then, you're with Christ. Perfect unity. Total, total completion. All the things you thought you wanted to fulfill you here truly fulfill you Christ, in Christ himself in the eternal Sabbath rest. So we, every bit of suffering that we have now, we don't take without the hope we also have of Christ himself. You will go through more suffering because that's life on this side of heaven. You're going to know people that you love that pass away. You're going to know horrible things that happen in the world. We get to know even more of it now because of the digital stuff, social media. You're going to go through elections where people who you thought they were are not who you thought they were. You think that this person's going to get, be in office and fix everything. 
don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't have Christians in politics and we shouldn't vote and do our, we should. I'm just saying that's not where our salvation is. Things are still going to be tough. We're still going to have to live through war and famine. But we all, we take it all with the hope of what happens in the end. We've already won. We're, the, we're people who go into this battle having already won. Our response to this nativity cannot be reduced to shutting the door against a wintry world, drinking hot chocolate and singing carols. Rather, we are ready to walk out the door with, as one psalmist puts it in Psalm 149, 6, high praises of God in our throats and two-edged swords in our hands. But the two-edged swords in our hands are not the swords made of metal. It's Eugene Peterson quote again. Not made of metal. Uh, I love Lord of the Rings. I love it. Huge fan. Um, uh, I still have yet to read the books, but I'm super into the <laughs> super into the movies. I know. I just, just like showed all my cards. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for your guys's grace and love. Um, so I do love the story. I can't wait till I'm done reading seminary textbooks so that I can read the Lord of the Rings. Um, but in the Lord of the Rings, there's this time in the Fellowship of the Ring when Gladriel sends the Fellowship of the Ring, which is these nine people, with different gifts that she knows that they're going to need, and it's all that they'll need. And then they end up conquering in the end. I ruined it for you. There you go. But as she gives these gifts, she says, uh, well, they were given, let me just read the gifts to you. They were given cloaks to shield them from unfriendly eyes. They were given elven rope instead of a nice shiny dagger. Um, they were given a special light. Nobody laughed at that again. You guys haven't seen it, have you? Samwise Gamgee. If, when you watch it, then you'll be like, that's what Dre was talking about. That was so funny. Next time, I'll, I'll laugh at his jokes. Um, but they were given a special light. Uh, Frodo was given a special light of a star to guide them in a dark place when all other lights go out which then you know he uses when this giant spider is trying to eat him. And elven bread that would fill the stomach of a grown man with one small bite, even though it would take a couple to fill the small stomach of hobbits. Um, but they were given just what they needed to conquer, and we have been given everything that we need to conquer. Open up your Bibles. Please go to, um, if it's not open already, it should be. Um, go to Ephesians 6, please. Many of us might be familiar with this passage, um, but we're going to get more familiar with it. Go to verse 10. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the, of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Weren't we just reading about that? The enemy is overtaking the powers of, of this world. We do not struggle against flesh and blood. And some of us in here are carrying bitter with us, bitterness with us. Because we think it was the person that we should have our fight versed against. Some of us are carrying in here hatred because of it, even. What's our place in this battle? Our place in this battle is not to hate or to, or to carry that bitterness with you, which is drinking poison and hoping the other person feels it. That's not what we're called to. 
Through faith and obedience, we fight. So take up this whole armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's almost as if this same spirit who wrote Ephesians also wrote Revelation. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What do we fight with? Do we fight with your wit? With your ability to best somebody in an argument? Do we fight with your uh, financial power and influence? Do we fight with killing? Do we fight with deceit or accusation? No. The one offensive weapon that we have is the sword, the sword of the Spirit. We don't fight with spears. We don't fight with uh, guns or arrows. We fight with the sword. So if we're called to wield the sword, we should train in it. We should be able to wield the sword well. We should know our Bibles. We should memorize our Bibles. We should study. We should love our Bibles. If you're a Marine, you have to make this chant. I was never a Marine, so I, I, forgive me if I say it wrong. But they would say, this is my rifle, and there are many like it, but this one is mine. I am nothing without my rifle. My rifle is nothing without me. They knew in battle, if you don't have your weapon and you can't use it to be perfect, like every single Marine when they graduate has to be like a marksman. If you're not totally capable with your weapon, you know that that means death for you. And yet we would like to say, well, it's not a real sword, so I don't have to really train in it. And yet we're sitting here and we're like, we need to be way more comfortable to be able to know where things are in, our, in, the, in the scriptures. Why? Because it's life for us. It leads us to Christ. So we love our Bibles. We study them. We memorize it. We learn how to wield it. And every other thing that we're given, the breastplate of righteousness, obedience, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, faith and obedience. We don't fight with swords. We fight with the sword and we fight with faith and obedience. Let us not think of this. So yes, our enemy is a scary red dragon with a bunch of scary heads that I saw Hercules once and you cut off one and more come. Many of us might take this and think, oh man, we will get obsessed with thinking about him way too much. He's been defeated. We look to the cross and we think about Christ. And in the moment of trouble, in the moment of tribulation, in the moment when you face hardship, because you will, you take it with the hope that you have in Christ. This is just a sliver, a tiny little instant compared to the eternity that we have with God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, this word that you've given to us. I pray we would be able to use it and wield it well. I pray, we, pray that we would pray it. I pray that we would um, also become 
prayer warriors more and more, that we would realize the true power that comes from prayer. Um, and I also pray, Lord, that you would work in us to love uh, looking to the cross more and more. Protect us from the enemy. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear to know what's going on, that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the enemy. Um, and God, I pray as we go into this week that we'd be able to take this word and know that we conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of Jesus. Lord, thank you for winning this fight for us that we can fight from a place of victory and we don't have to fight for the victory with a lack of assurance. But Lord, let us also be like these Christians who were faithful even unto death. Let us love not our own lives even unto death, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.